Please be seated. They were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Some years ago, the Anglican theologian David Ford published The Shape of Living. The book, still well worth our attention, shared an approach to the Christian life, found also in the work of Craig Dykstra and Dorothy Bass and Timothy Sedgwick on this side of the Atlantic, all grounded to varying degrees in Alastair McIntyre's After Virtue. I'm telling you this, to borrow a line from Presiding Bishop Michael Curry, so that you know that I went to seminary. (laughs) Writing in what we now look back on fondly as an age of simplicity, the late 1990s, Ford took note of all the ways that life can overwhelm us. You know the list. Work and school, kids and parents, spouses and partners, health care and home mortgages, school loans and credit card debts. Even play and leisure can be exhausting. Or you think you're the only one who comes home after a trip and says, I need a vacation from my vacation. Overwhelming. That's not a bad way to describe how life feels sometimes. In the 90s, we were also told to grab our bliss. Quaint. Don't those people read the paper? Although that's kind of 90s too. Blissful. Are you kidding? Overwhelmed. That's what we are. And too often anxious and exhausted. So what do we think we are doing here on a beautiful fall Saturday morning in church of all places? We are doing something outrageous. Here's another related question. One any reasonable person really has to ask, what was Isaiah thinking? You do not say yes until you know the terms and the conditions. How long and to whom and under what circumstances are things even a prophet might be expected to ask before signing on? Now we like to think Isaiah would have said yes in any case, So we lift him up and his call as a model for those entering into vocation and by extension, ordination. But what if Isaiah had said no? The pages of Holy Scripture are filled with reluctant prophets and reticent kings, just as the lives of the saints include nary a volunteer Clear-eyed, data-driven, best-practices-oriented folk know better. Ministry is for fools. Or to again recall the words of the presiding bishop, for crazy Christians. And now we are getting somewhere. Because everybody here knows that Nathan Huddleston is a little bit crazy. In a good way. But how 
exactly is one foolish enough to volunteer for as intense and demanding a set of tasks as the priesthood requires. Expect to survive long enough to accomplish a few of them. The answer, thank God, is in the vows Nate will soon take. Not, and I'm sorry to tell you this, Bishop Beckwith, the vow of obedience to you. Just ask Bishop Alexander if you're getting your hopes up. No, it comes a little later. Will you pattern your life after Christ? Will you? That's as good a question for any and all of us as it is for Nate. Will we pattern our lives after Christ? And what would it look like if we did? In Ford's The Shape of Living, Sedgwick's The Christian Moral Life, and Bass and Dyktra's Practicing Our Faith, the turn is surprisingly monastic to my reading. Each author makes a sound case for understanding the Christian life as a series of practices or habits, ways of living that lead to a way of being. Will you pattern your life after Christ? Now, of course, each author recommends a slightly different set of practices. And since I'm preaching, I suppose you should expect I'll tell you what practices I think matter. But I won't. Because I don't care if you know what practices I think best shape and form the Christian life. I care what practices you think matter. A popular way of looking at the issue is to ask, what would Jesus do? And I'm all for that as long as we do not let it remain singular and situational. If we do sincerely ask what Jesus would do, it's a good thing, but only if it is more than occasional, rather a consistent, every nook and cranny of our lives kind of thing. The matter of Christian practice of patterning our lives after Christ is deep and wide. Here and now, yes, but also forever after, world without end. Amen. To the extent we've been paying attention throughout our life, we can look back and see what shape our own answers have taken in the past. We have commitments, priorities, strength, and talents, just as we have blind spots, gaps, and a glaring weakness or two, so be it. Now what? How do we build on the strengths, the gifts God has given us while overcoming blind spots and weaknesses? We practice our faith. Pick a practice, any practice. Prayer is an obvious one. Hospitality less so, but arguably just as important. Joy, I think, is a commitment and takes practice and resilience and determination. Life's overwhelmings can suck the joy right out of us. Especially 
if you're out of practice. And in this electoral season, far too many of us surely are. Today, there may be nothing as countercultural as the practice of joy. Generosity is also a practice, but so is greed. There are many such pairings in Scripture and Christian tradition. The works of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5 are only the best-known example. And this two-ways tradition is found in the wisdom tradition of many faiths. Remember how the Native American legend goes? An elder says to his grandchild, a terrible fight is going on inside me. Like a fight between two wolves. One is evil. He has anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance. The other is good. He has joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, generosity, truth. The same fight is going on inside you and inside every other person, too. The child asks, which wolf will win? The elder says, the one you feed. St. Paul wrote something very similar to the Philippians. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honest, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The central metaphor of Ford's The Shape of Living, overwhelmed, has more than one dimension. Of course, of course, life, life is overwhelming. So is ordained ministry. Now I confess, and I now advise you, I'm now advising you, Nate, from the cozy confines of the School of Theology in Sewanee, where Dean Alexander, and I know you'll share my outrage at this, Dean expects me to teach four and a half hours a week for two 14-week semesters. It's an outrage. So find yourself a big grain of salt, Nate. This part's really just for you. You'll be overwhelmed sometimes, my brother. You already have been on your way to this glorious and holy day. It's as inevitable in ministry as it is in life. But there's another overwhelming coming your way the overwhelming love and power of the Holy Spirit. You will experience it in a hospital waiting room, at the wake of a teenager, having coffee with a parishioner. It will come upon you when you're preparing a sermon, or singing a hymn, or smoking a brisket for a youth picnic. And it will come upon you and knock 
you flat when you have the audacity to stand behind the altar and invite the Holy Spirit to come upon the bread and the wine. Overwhelming. I wondered earlier what it is that we're doing here in church on a beautiful fall Saturday morning. We are doing something outrageous. We are praying that the Holy Spirit will come upon Nate and make him priest. You'll never be the same. We're counting on it.